be turning to Second Peter chapter 3. You can see on the screen, we're in verses 8 and 9 today. There's a real temptation this morning, and that's to be lulled to sleep by the rain outside. So stay with me. We'll get through this. You can sleep after lunch. Hopefully it's still raining then. We could use a good soak here. Um, but we're in verses 8 and 9. The, thir- the third chapter of Second Peter really begins with this response from Peter as to what the scoffers are saying. So he's, he's already said, we've read through that last week. Uh, they claim, they say, hey, nothing has changed since the beginning. So nothing's going to change. And they mock Christians saying, where's the promise? And you can kind of read into the sarcasm of that kind of a question. They say, if, if Jesus hasn't come and come back yet, it ain't going to happen. And so they scoff and they mock. And Peter argues and he says, well, actually, God has intervened in the world in three major ways. And you can see this in verses 1 through 7. He says, God's authorship in creation. He says, remember, God created everything from his word. That God judged the whole world with a flood. And then he mentions in verse 7 that God is coming back to judge the ungodly. And then in verse 8, Peter addresses the Christians that he's writing to directly. He calls them beloved, beloved. So I want us just to keep in mind before we read these two verses, just keep in mind that these verses and everything around them all have the same main point. The, the, the context is the same. We're still talking about the second coming of Christ. Okay? So really this is what Peter says here in verses 8 and 9. This is just kind of another response to the scoffers. Saying, don't forget... Okay, so read this with me. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should reach repentance. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, this is your word. We don't need Rod's opinion here. We need the spirit to teach us. And so Lord, do that. Use me however you wish so that we learn how to wait on you patiently, that we learn how to repent based on the moving of your spirit in our heart, that we learn how to understand your will in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. So we we deliberately, I deliberately saved these two verses to talk about together because there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings about particular these two verses. And so I want to just kind of go through them each one at a time and then bring it back at the end to wrapping this back up and what is how do these fit into major Peter's major point here, okay? So remember what the scoffers have been saying. You can look back at verse 4. They said where's the promise of his coming? Nothing's changed, nothing's gonna change. And Peter says, "Well, hey, you might be right." That Jesus hasn't returned yet, but you can't overlook this fact. He says, don't overlook this fact. And this is, I'm just going to summarize what he says. Don't overlook this fact. You're not God. Okay. So I'm, this is the message for me. 
And this is the message for you. Don't, don't forget this fact, guys. You're not God. Okay? We still need to remember this. And from God's experience of time, it actually hasn't been that long. A thousand years, Peter says, for us is nothing but a day to God. And here's, I think, where, where some folks make a wrong turn when they read this scripture. Some people try to use this verse to advocate for an earth that's probably a lot older than it actually is. And they say, well, Peter says a day is a thousand years. So if we read that into the creation account, well, now we've got a thousand year days instead of regular 24 hour periods. And that's, that's what they say. They say, well, then it can't mean a literal 24 hour day. It must mean if a, if a day, you guys see what I'm saying. Okay, so I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but just I think we can quickly see that God's not trying to redefine the term day and what he says to Peter here. Peter doesn't say a day is a thousand years. What does he say? A day is like a thousand years. So this is really easy to understand if you've ever been to a a basketball game before. Okay, I love basketball, played a lot growing up. If you've been to a basketball game before and the score is tight and you're getting late in the game, maybe there's just a few seconds left and there's a foul and somebody goes to the foul line and they sink their free throws, what do we say? We say, man, that guy's got ice in his veins. Or we, we say, that, that kid's as cool as a cucumber. Maybe you don't say that anymore, but he's as cute, cool as a cucumber. This is, this is a writing tool called a simile. Okay, it uses the words like or as in making a comparison between two things. So maybe you're at a swim meet, some of you all swim, and you say, man, that kid swims like a fish. Do you actually mean that that child is a fish? Well, no. Of course not. When you say that guy's got ice in his veins, you don't actually mean his veins are frozen. That's, it's, it's a simile that you use, that we use frequently, to help us kind of understand things better. So Peter is using figurative language here when he's talking about a day and a thousand years as to the Lord. And it's pointing out what I think we all probably get, but we need to be reminded of sometimes. God's timetable... And man's timetable are very, very different. Remember, you're not God, okay? God's not limited by the same time constraints that we are. This is nothing new. Now, I can't fully explain the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God, because I change. Day by day, I get older. And with that, you guys understand, brings all all kinds of changes to my personality, to my body, to my family, to everything around me. I'm constantly changing, but the Bible teaches us that God is not. And so not even the, the oldest human being lived to be a thousand years, and yet that's like a day to the Lord. It's just like a day. It's it's like nothing. Our our lifetime, even the longest person's lifetime, which is just shy of a thousand years, even that is minuscule in comparison to the existence of God. Remember, you are not God. So time is different between us and the Lord, right? We are working on limited supply of it. But God's supply of time is unlimited. And so our view of this is very different. 
Think about it this way. This might help us understand. If, if, if you, you're an adult and you've got a job and you've got money in the bank and you go to the store and you see an item that costs 10 cents or let's say 50 cents, 50 cents. And then you see another item that's $5. Okay. Well, if you really want that item, that price difference doesn't matter. You're going to get it. Because it doesn't impact really your overall bank account much at all, right? 50 cents or $5, even though one is like 10 times more than the other, it's not a big deal. The difference is minuscule. Think about if a billionaire, that's a lot of money, if a billionaire wanted to buy a piece of property, it wouldn't matter to him if it costs $5,000, or if it costs $50,000, it doesn't make a dent in his bank account at all. And I think this is Peter's point in this topic of the thousand years in a day kind of a thing. He says, look, a 24-hour day or a thousand-year millennia are such tiny amounts of time to God that the difference is immaterial. It doesn't matter. In just our own lifetimes, we can see and experience time differently based on multiple factors. I've discovered that as I get older, time seems to go by quicker. Kids, how many times have you heard one of your parents say, man, it just seems like I was, it was yesterday that gas was a dollar and a half a gallon or, or whatever. You know what I mean? And some of you all gas was a lot cheaper than that when you were a kid. 55 cents. The cheapest I remember is when Mark McGuire was going for 72 and they had gas for 72 cents a gallon. That was the cheapest I remember. But we, we get that because we experience time in that way. Age, how old we are, affects the passage of time in our lives. I think another thing that affects the passage of time in our lives is joy. So kids, think about this. When was the last time you were at something that you really didn't want to be at? Time seemed like it stood still, right? Like you're constantly checking your watch. Oh, how much longer to be here? Hopefully this morning you're not feeling that way. (laughs) But what's the opposite of that? If you're having a great time, what do we say? Time flies when you're, when you're having fun. That's so true, isn't it? Our, our age kind of plays into how we experience time. The joy that we're experiencing plays into how we experience time. You know, you go, you go on a great vacation. I think the Blackwells just got back from vacation, right guys? And when you got, how long were you gone? Yeah. How long were you guys gone? Six days. Okay. It's almost a week. So you're, you leave and then you experience, hopefully you guys had a great time and and you experience this great vacation. You know, it's, it's actually relaxing, you know, what vacations ought to be. And then you get back and it's like, you feel like you just left. Right, and that, like no time had passed at all. The, you were caught up in the moments. You were enjoying, engaging with with family and friends, and you were having a great time. It's opposite when you're not having a great time. It just takes forever. We've always uh, parents. We've we've all heard from our kids after they've been at some place where they really were having a good time. And we're like, guys, it's time to go. I'm like what? It feels like we just got here. They're having a great time. Well, this is how we are in this world too. We're affected by these different things. And we find out that when we're content, when we're happy, we're not concerned about the passage of time. How much time has gone? Six days on vacation seems to go by 
just like that. One day, and this is, I think, what Peter's getting at too, one day Christ is going to come back, he's going to set his feet on this earth again, and it's going to seem like it was just yesterday he was here. Because he experienced time differently than we do. Peter says, to the Lord a thousand years is but a day, because he experiences time very differently than we do. And if you consider the reason why Peter even uses this, this simile, this writing tool here, you can quickly see... Peter's not trying to like bury this formula for people in the centuries to come to try to decode and decipher like when Jesus is coming back or if the earth is a certain age or not. I don't think that was Peter's intent at all here by using this simile of like a thousand years. I think if if Peter wanted to do that, I think he would have just told us, right? He would have found out. And he would have said, hey, Jesus is coming back in a a couple of thousand years. Be ready. That's not what he does. He just explains to us how different we are than God. We're not God. Our job as Christians isn't to try to figure out the exact day when Jesus is coming back. We're going to find out next week in verses 11 through 13. Peter says that the Christian's job is just to eagerly wait for his coming and to live properly while we wait. Like that's what we're called to do. Wait for it with eager expectation and live right while we wait. We'll talk about more, more about that next week. Before we move to verse 9, let, let's just recap, because I think this is all one flow of thought for Peter. Okay, So go back to verse 4. Scoffers, they're saying, hey, where's the promise? Verse 5 and 6, Peter reminds them, because God has intervened, creation, the flood, The earth will be destroyed by fire in verse 7, he says. Verse 8, they say, well, hey, I think Peter's answering a question that he expects is on people's minds. They're saying, God hasn't, Jesus hasn't returned. What's taking him so long? And he says, guys, God is above our understanding. God is outside of time as we experience it. It may seem like we've been waiting a long time. And yet, to God... It's like a blink of an eye. Now look at verse 9. This is, I think here, Peter explains why God has waited so long. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter again points out the differences between you and me and our experience of time and God's. And he says this, he says, remember God's promise-keeping abilities. Remember his promise-keeping abilities. Don't forget it. When considering the second coming of Christ, I think it's necessary for us to keep in mind the differences between the promises of God and just the promises that we make, promises of men and women. Think about this. If a father promises his son at an early age that he's going to buy him a car. That's great, right? Uh, the son is excited. Now, at, at four years old, he's probably not all that interested in it. But at age 11, he's starting to see the benefits of what it might mean to be independent and drive. And so he's getting a little bit excited. But his dad hasn't bought him a car yet, so it's not that big a deal. Well, at age 15... That boy is starting to get a lot more interested in cars, but his dad's still not bought it yet. So it's not a huge deal because he can't drive on his own at age 15 just yet, so no big deal. But if the son turns 16 
21. 35, and the father's not bought him a car, he's probably about to give up. Give up hope. And if the father dies before making good on this promise to his son, then the promise has expired. It's no good anymore. He can't fulfill that promise if he's gone. How disappointed is that son going to be to not have received what his father promised? But God's promises are not like man's promises because they don't have an expiration date, see? They're not contingent on his lifespan because he is eternal. God's not bound the same way that human beings are. Therefore, God's promises cannot be viewed through the human lens of time or the, the lens of human time. God's promises can't only be viewed in that way. I heard a, another pastor say, if, if God is working on a plan that will take 10,000 years to unfold, it's no different to him than if his plan took 10 days to unfold. Time is experienced very differently. So what's the reason? Why, why has God waited so long for the second coming? This is what Peter says. Christ's delay in coming again is to showcase God's patience and mercy. That's it. To showcase God's patience and mercy. The first half of this verse, of verse 9, I think is, is easy enough, right? We can understand and see evidence of God's patience in the world around us and certainly in our own lives. I would hope that each one of us could go back, kind of rewind the reel here, and go back and identify a lot of ways in which God has been patient to us, in which God has been merciful to us. The challenge, I think, though, comes in the second half of verse 9, specifically with three words. The first word is not wishing, and then the other two words are any and all, and those kind of go together, so we'll talk about them Together. First, let's look at this word wishing. That's how the ESV translate it, translates it. Others translations say any, or I'm sorry, not wanting. So ESV says not willing. Some say not wanting. Some say not willing. Not wishing is what the ESV says. I think I said that wrong. But I think this is part of where some of the confusion lies and the difficulty comes in is, is how it's translated. I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't pretend to be, and yet I think that we can, we can see a good way to read this based on the rest of Scripture. So follow along with me. The issue comes from the fact that the phrase not willing kind of has this idea, or makes it sound at least, as if God would, wouldn't allow anyone to perish, but that all should, would come to repentance. And I'm not sure that that's what it's saying. So I think to understand what this is saying better, we need to understand the will of God better. And that's a big topic. So theologians have broken it down into kind of three different wills of God that are evidenced in Scripture. Okay? And you, I get it. Maybe you're thinking, Rod, what in the world do I care about this? How does this matter in my life? This is for theologians and professors, Right? These, this is over my head. I don't need to know this. I actually think that it'd be good for you to know this, to understand this, because things happen in your life and you look back and you say, was that God's will that I was abused as a child? Was it God's will that my grandma got cancer and died? How do we answer those questions if we don't understand the will of God? So I would argue that this is very important for us to understand. Now, 
the way we understand the will of God needs to be different from the way we understand the will of men, however, because God and men have very different distinctions. Uh, eternality, right? We are created. God is not. He's always been, always will be. Uh, God is all-powerful. God is never-changing. God has all wisdom and knowledge. He's omniscient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The differences between us and God. So to simply say that God does not allow anyone to perish is actually a false belief called universalism. You may have heard of this. This is not supported by Scripture. This belief says that everyone will eventually be saved. The tagline for this a few years ago was just the love wins. And it's this idea that if God is a God of love, Scripture calls him that, if God is a God of love, this says, then surely he could never send anyone to the torments of hell for all of eternity. And they, they can't reconcile a God of love and a God who would do that, they say. And they use Second Peter 3.9 to make their case. Well, here are some problems with it. And these are in your notes, problems with universalism. And these are just some that I easily identified. There are more. First of all, men and women willingly choose rebellion against God. To say, how could God send them to hell is, is a bit of a wrong way to say it. Because we choose that path. We consciously rebel. It's in our very nature to do so. And so, as Peter's already said in the last couple of weeks, we earn the wages that we're given. And the Bible says that's death and that's an eternal separation of God in hell. We earn that. God doesn't just randomly send people there. We earn that. That's number one. Another couple of problems here. Well, if hell isn't an actual place where unsaved people go when they pass away, why did Jesus talk about it so much? Why did he talk about it in such vivid, uh, graphic uh, vividness? And why did he warn people about it so often? He's constantly talking about the perils of hell. He's constantly talking about the narrow and the wide gate and path. Why would he do that if it didn't matter in the end? And maybe the biggest problem with universalism is if every person goes to heaven, regardless of what they've done, why did Christ suffer and die in the first place? Why? If it doesn't matter if you believe in his sacrifice on your behalf, why did he sacrifice himself to begin with? And so I don't think this can be what Peter is saying here. He can't be saying that everyone goes to heaven. The will of man, here's the difference between the will of God and the will of man. The will of man is pretty straightforward, I think. When we, we want something to happen, and so we will for it to take place. And by that I mean we do everything we can and we hope that it turns out the way that we, we want it to. That's what our will can accomplish. And then when we do something, we said that we've shown our will in the matter. But God's will is more complex. And so I said there's theologians have kind of broken it down into three different things. I just want to quickly introduce them to you and explain how it works into this passage. The first one um, is decretive will. Sometimes it's called God's sovereign will. The second one is perceptive will. Uh, preceptive will or revealed will or will of command. And then the last one is dispositional will. We'll talk about these more in just a moment. Okay. Um, you, 
again, you might think this is unnecessary, but stick with me. I think this applies to our lives in understanding the will of God. Does God will presence of the presence of evil in the world? Does God will suffering on people? Does he cause evil to happen? Does he do evil himself? Well, if God is sovereign over all creation, which he is, then each one of us needs to face the problem of evil in the world in relation to the will of God. And this is why distinctions on the will of God are important and necessary for theologians and us to understand and differentiate between. So the first one was decretive will or, or sovereign will. And this is the most the most frequent use of the will of God in Scripture. This decretive will says whatever God decrees, it's going to happen. It will come to pass. Think about creation. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. The light did not have an option. God didn't coerce the light. He didn't beg with the light to come into existence. He said it and it happened. Decree. God's decretive will. He spoke and out of his absolute power and absolute authority, it had to come into existence. God's decretive will can have no other effect than what he commands. See, our decrees, the decrees of men, the will of men, um, are different. We issue a decree and then hope that that decree brings about the desired effect. God's decree is not like that because it always, absolutely brings that into being, period. We see evidence of this when it says every word of God goes out and accomplishes exactly what he ordained for it, what he wills for it. That's decretive will. The second will is perceptive will or revealed will or will of command. This is what God commands us to do or not do. So think about the Ten Commandments. What? Who can tell me the first commandment? Thou shalt have... No other gods before me. This is a decree of God, a law, a command of God. Can it be, can it be disobeyed? We do it all the time. All the time. We bow down to idols. Maybe not figurative, or maybe not literal idols, but figurative. We bow down to all things. We put things in place of God. It can be His preceptive will, the things that He, His precepts, but they can be disobeyed, unlike his sovereign will, which cannot. The light and the animals in creation and the plants and all of that, they had no ability to disobey God. And yet when God made Adam and Eve, what did they do? Probably in a quick fashion, they chose to disobey. They disobeyed God. They were told to be fruitful, to multiply, to tend to the garden, to have dominion over the earth, and to not eat of that one particular tree. They rebelled. Genesis 3 talks about this. The the consequences that they suffered, though, show us something important. They show us that they couldn't excuse their sin. They tried. Don't forget, God calls out, and Adam tries to blame Eve. Eve tries to blame Satan, right? So they're just trying to pass the buck on down the line. But they bore the consequences themselves. They couldn't blame their eating of the fruit on God, even though they tried, or on anybody else. So in the same way, we can't simply just say, well, my sin fulfills God's sovereign will in the world, so it's okay. 
You, you see how we might be tricked into thinking that? Remember, Mark 14, 21 says that though it was God's will that Jesus suffer and die, all those men who beat him and put him to death were still held accountable for their sin in that. Does God have the ability and the power to keep you from sinning? Yeah. Does God have the power and ability to keep you from being hurt? He does. The question then is, why doesn't he? And that's an honest question. It's a good question to ask. And I think that the Bible has answers for us. Think about Joseph with me for a moment. You guys remember the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, jealousy in his brothers. They decide that they're going to kill him. And they're going to stage it like an accident, like he was eaten by a wild animal. One brother has a bit of conscience and says, well, let's not just kill him. Let's make something off of this. Let's sell him. And so they sold him. He might as well have been dead. He goes through the prison system. Eventually, he gets to the second in command in all of Egypt. And God used him to prepare for basically a worldwide famine for years. After all of those things, in the end, after the betrayal, after the lying, after the selling him into slavery, leaving him for dead, Joseph recognizes that it was God who meant those things for good. No one could argue, and I don't think anybody would, and try to argue that what Joseph's brothers did was good. No one's going to say it was a good thing that they did that. What they did was revealed by God's law as sin, right? Lying, basically attempted murder. They thought he was dead for years. God said those things are wrong. So we can't say, well, Joseph's brothers did the right thing there. And yet God's good will was served through the bad will of Joseph's brothers. That is a concept that kind of racks our brains a little bit. Because remember, you're not God. Now, some might argue that since Joseph's brothers were just doing the will of God, then their actions were right. Probably not going to argue that. But some might say, well, how can they be held accountable then? Just like Adam and Eve, they were responsible for their actions, which Joseph, in this really famous statement, rightly identifies as evil. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. R.C. Sproul says, that God brings good out of evil only underscores the power and the excellence of his sovereign will. I think that's true. The fact that the evil that's rampant in our world, God uses for good, just magnifies his glory. At least I hope it is in our lives. The third will to discuss is what some call the dispositional will of God. This has to do with the basic disposition of God towards fallen humanity, his attitude, if you will, towards them. It's a really important passage in Ezekiel 33 that says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That they turn from their ways and live. And yet, look at verse 9 of Second Peter chapter 2. He still judges them for their sin. Peter said there, he said, he's, God is reserving the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. I've heard stories of police officers, arresting police officers who 
that person was found guilty and sentenced to death, and these arresting officers are present at the execution of this person. And heard and read, really read stories and their accounts and how even though this person went through the justice system, did the things that they were accused of and rightly deserved this punishment, those officers took no pleasure in this. Though justice is being dispensed rightly, they weren't happy about it, but it was right. Do you see how this could be said of God? Even though the the ungodly are being kept for judgment, even though God's wrath is being stored up, Scripture says, for those who don't know him for that last day, even though God's punishment, discipline, wrath will be poured out on all those who don't know Christ one day, God doesn't enjoy it, and yet it's right. You see how that's shown out in this Scripture here? He still judges them for their sin. Justice is still being kept. But I think this is why verse 9 in chapter 3 is translated in the ESV the way that it, that, that it is. It says, not wishing that any should perish. Does God delight in the destruction of his creation? I don't think so. Does he wish that any should perish? Peter says that he would rather that none perish and that all should repent. And that's the hope that we have, brothers and sisters. That's the hope that keeps us motivated in evangelism. That God's patience is being clearly seen in these last days, however these last days, however long they are. And that we have this message of hope to go and to say, you're not dead because God is having patience on you. You're breathing today because God's mercy is made evident in your life. But I want us to go back for just a moment in verse 9 and consider those other, those other two words, any and all. Okay, there's a, an assumption read into the text here that I think happens too often. Some read this verse and they conclude that God doesn't want anyone to perish, so therefore all will come to repentance and faith. And then you land again on universalism. So what is what is the Bible actually saying? What does Peter actually mean here? Well, let's remember context, right? We have to read this in the in the whole of chapter 3, in the whole of Peter's second epistle here. And he, it's, it's about the second coming of Christ, right? We said this at the beginning. This is all in the context of the second coming of Jesus. So what is, we're, we're focused on the word any, which I realize is translated a little different in some of your Bibles. But the, the word any, what's the antecedent of that word? Like what word precedes it? What comes before it and points to it? Well, it's, it's you, or it says toward us, or toward you. So then the answer lies in who the you is. The you is who Peter is writing to. So who's Peter writing to? That's a long way to get to this question, but who is Peter writing to? Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. He identifies himself, Simon Peter, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice in chapter 3 alone, I think he uses the term beloved three, four, maybe five times. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. Those who have obtained a faith equal to his. Christians. He's distinguishing between believers and unbelievers, scoffers, false teachers. 
So he's writing to Christians who have faith by the righteousness of Christ. That's what verse 1, chapter 1 said. Get, so get this. This is the beauty of this text, in my opinion. The beauty of what Peter is saying here is that God sovereignly decrees that none of his elect children will perish. And that all of them will come to faith, repentance, and salvation. This is what he's, he's saying. None of them will be lost. This jives with what Jesus says in John 10 and others. When he says, his sheep hear his voice and come to him. Were it not for God's sovereign choice and salvation, everyone would perish in their sin. This is what Romans teaches us. Because everyone's hearts are inclined to evil. Following Peter's, Paul says in Ephesians 2, following the course and the pattern of this world. The enemy. If God didn't save some, none would be saved. And this is the beauty of it. Every, every one of God's people will be saved and will be kept. And this is what Peter is saying. And he's, he's bringing us back to the main point. Let's go back to the main point of this. What is it? Jesus is coming again. He's coming back. The world will be judged in fire. And it may seem like we're having to wait a really long time. For this to happen. But from God's perspective, it's just a nanosecond in eternity. It's just a tiny amount of time to God. But the big thing that we need to remember here is what he says in verse 7. Don't mistake God's patience for indifference. Okay? Don't mistake his kindness for not caring. The end will come with fire. And the destruction of the ungodly is sure. God's patience and mercy continue to extend to everyone and everything in creation until those whom he is calling respond in faith, at which point Christ will return. This is great news. This should be, this is great news for us. This is great news for our kids. This is great news for our grandkids if the Lord tarries. This is great news for all the generations that come before us, especially great for all those who are here now. To hear the message of the gospel, to to understand God's patience in my life, that I would be given the gift of hearing and responding to the gospel message while I can because his patience is enduring. He's waiting. God's not given up, and I want us to take some comfort in that. Our world seems like a pretty wretched place, and in reality, it is. Our hearts are the same way. They're pretty wretched places were it not for Christ. But God has not given up. He's still working. He's still saving. And His patience simply displays His kindness and His mercy that's still being poured out on the world today. And it's a good thing, isn't it? The question then that we wrestle with and that I would encourage and challenge you with today is just very simply, are you ready? Do you see God's patience in your life? If you wake up in the morning, if you breathe another breath, there's evidence. God's coming back. Jesus is coming again and we're hopeful in that. And next week we're going to talk more about what we do while we wait. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray together. Lord, help us not to be confused, misguided, misdirected. Lord, I pray that 
what I have shared this morning leads people back to study your word, to dig into it and verify these truths. Lord, I pray if there was something that was said that is thought strange, that, Lord, you would give conviction, that you would help us study and dig in and say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I need to, I need to find out more. Lord, I pray that it would, it would cause us to dive back into your word in greater measure, to fall in love with it in a bigger way, to fall in love with you in a bigger way. Because Lord, we see who you are in the person of Christ and we long for his coming. Lord, it's true. We get tired of walking through this world and in your grace, you call us out of it at times, but Lord, you may be calling us to endure. And so I pray that you would remind us of this view that we need to be reminded of, that we are not God, that our timetable and his are very different, that our ability to keep our promises and in, in, in yours are very different. You will keep it. And we look forward to that day. But Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you would give us the work to do and that we would do it faithfully out of love. Lord, I pray that we would be ready. I, I know that there are some listening who, who know that they're not. And so my prayer would be that you would send your spirit to convict and move in their hearts. Lead them to repentance through your kindness, Lord. We thank you for that kindness and for your patience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.